Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord and our Savior, Jesus the Christ. Amen. Amen. In Jeremiah 7, the Lord gives his prophet Jeremiah a word of warning to all the men of Judah who entered through the gates to come into the temple to worship the Lord. The gates, right where everyone's going to be, right? It's kind of like having a sign on a busy intersection in town somewhere to catch people's attention with the word of truth. What was the warning that Jeremiah had on his lips? Amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. What deceptive words? These ones. They sound weird to our ears. This is the temple. The temple. The temple. The record's not broken. There's not a stutter. They are focusing on the reality of God's here. What do you mean, let us dwell in this place? This is our dwelling place with the Lord. Amend your ways and your deeds. Jeremiah preached repentance. Turn. That's what the word repentance means. Turn around and go the other way. But why? What's going on here? What's the context? We find out more in verses 8, 9, and 10. The Lord says, Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. And then he asks them this question. Will you steal? Murder? Commit adultery? Swear falsely? Make offerings to Baal? And go after other gods that you've not known? And then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we're delivered. Only to go on doing all these abominations? Really? Do you think that little of me, God is asking? Do you think I don't see what you're doing? But the temple, the temple... The temple. God's chosen people were led to believe that they could commit sin without consequence because God was with them, dwelling with them. That's what the temple was, his dwelling place. He was on their side. To them, the, the temple was evidence of that. See, God dwells with us. Jeremiah, you're a fool. Get out of the way. Let us go into the temple. We're all good. We know how, the, how this goes in our own day, don't we? Jesus died on the cross to forgive us our sins. See the cross? It's true. I'm forgiven when I sin. It's all good. So what do we do? Sin, 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 and sin some more. After all, Jesus. I got my get-out-of-jail-free card. So get out of the way, silly pastor. Stop bothering us with what God says and let us go on our way. This is what we do, isn't it? We justify our sins. I justify mine. I'm a pastor. I'm good to go. <laughs> Not with an attitude like that, bub. We trust in 
the deceptive words that we tell ourselves in the recesses of our own hearts, don't we? We trust in the deceptive words that our family and friends speak to us when they're, they're trying to encourage us and be supportive of us. But what we need encouragement or support in happens to be sin. You know, God is love. If it makes you happy, it's a good thing, right? After all, it's not that bad. I mean, you could be a lot worse. You're just being whom God made you to be. What's it going to hurt? No one's going to see. No one's going to know. God does want you to be happy, right? Our world is full of these deceptive words that we're so eagerly tempted to trust. I would pay someone to tell me these things. Just tell me what I want to hear. Scratch my itching ears. And some of them are even true in their original context. God is love. Or how about we're saved by grace, not by works. That is true. We know what it's like to think God has freed us from our sin so we can keep on sinning some more. Ha! Payday. How many sins do you commit every single day? How many sins do you commit and then repent of with a contrite heart, that sense of guilt that makes you never want to do it again? How many, on the other hand, sins do you commit that don't even register on your repentance radar? Not even bothered by it because your conscience has become numb. And you know, God is love. Jeremiah's warning is for us too, isn't it? Amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place, God says. Who will let us do what? I will let you dwell in this place. God will let us. Do not trust in these deceptive words, he says. In other words, repent. And don't listen to those false prophets who tell you, it's okay. Don't worry. God's good with you. I mean, everybody else he probably has a problem with, but you... You're all right. You're not like that guy. Now turn back, Jeremiah says, back to your baptism, back to Christ. The warning that Jeremiah gives us includes some specifics. Commandments 7, 5, 6, 8, and 1 in that order, and 1 overflows into commandment 2 and 3 as well. He says, will you steal? And the answer should be, no, Lord, of course not. We should fear and love God so that we do not take our neighbor's money or possessions or get them in any dishonest way, but help him to improve and protect his possessions and income. If that sounds familiar, it's from the catechism. That's the, the general answer to why we don't steal. Will you murder, he asks, a sin that Jesus tells us we commit in our hearts when we hate our neighbor. The answer, again, is to be, no, Lord. We should fear and love God so that we do not hurt or harm our neighbor in his body, but help and support him in every physical need. Will you commit adultery? Again, no, Lord, certainly not. 
And the Lord teaches us yet again that the lust in our hearts makes us guilty of this sin. We should fear and love God so that we lead a sexually pure and decent life in what we say and do, the catechism teaches us. And husband and wife love and honor each other. But this is just not socially acceptable anymore. I know, you know decency, purity, the things that you think would be good, that's old hat. Come on. Sex positive is the new term. Live it up. Will you swear falsely? No, Lord. We should fear and love God so that we do not tell lies about our neighbor, even those who hate us. We shouldn't betray our neighbor, slander our neighbor, or hurt his reputation, but defend him, even if he is an opponent, an enemy. Speak well of him and explain everything in the kindest way, understanding that all people are going through hard times because we're all sinners, having sympathy for them. If you remember from a few weeks back, the sermon on sympathy, on fellow feeling from the Greek, that splagizomai we talked about. Will you make an offering to Baal and go after other gods that you have not known? And then have the audacity, the gall, because you're a big guy in those big boots, and stand right here before me in this house that bears my name and say, the gospel saves me. We are delivered. Look, Jesus. Only to go on committing all these abominations? And we know the right answer. Certainly not, Lord, no. We should fear, love, and trust in God above all things. We should fear and love God so that we do not curse, swear, use satanic arts, lie, or deceive by his name, but call upon it in every trouble. Pray, praise, and give thanks. We should fear and love God so that we do not despise preaching in his word but hold it sacred and gladly hear and learn it. If only we would still do this as a society, how much better our world would be. In Jeremiah's day, God's people had been taught to take him for granted. They had been deceived by their, their leaders who minimized God's law and provided them with a false gospel. This is in theological jargon, either antinomianism or gospel reductionism or some other means of reducing the law and saying, you, you know Jesus, so we're all free to do whatever we want, Jesus. You know, it's about Jesus. See the temple, temple, temple? See, that means you and God are good, they tell us. So keep on doing what you want to do. God wants you to be happy. You're peachy, friend. Trust me. Anytime someone says, trust me, you might want to do the opposite of that. And this is why Jesus wept when he drew near to Jerusalem and prophesied that God's city of peace would be destroyed, along with his temple in the middle of it. The Jews had become God's people in name only, trusting in deceptive words, just like so many progressive Christians and Christians in name only today. They failed to fear, love, and trust in God. They said, the temple, the temple, the temple. God's on our side. 
All's good, man. We're saved by grace, not by works. We read the paper today, just today in general, right? You read the paper, you go to the obituaries, and you'll, you'll notice a theme. Everyone's a good person. Like, everybody's relative is like the best person in the world. And they're all in a better place. But is that true? Well, not according to Scripture. If we, if we as Christians believe Scripture to be true, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So to be a good person means squat. You could be a horrible person from the eyes of your neighbor or your niece or whoever writes your obituary and that you could still be in heaven if you have repentant faith in Christ, which is something totally foreign to the world and they cannot grasp it. But we have divorced ourselves from this objective reality of, of, letting, of letting scripture tell us what is what and now we live in a fantasy land that God wants all people to have all good things and everything's perfect and, you know, it's going to be better. They're in a better place. The temple, the temple, the temple. We're saved by grace, not by works. God's gracious, so everyone goes to heaven. Just like all the dogs. That was for you. Really? While the wor words of that sentence, saved by grace, not by works, are absolutely 100% true, hear me rightly, the spirit of it is completely distorted and therefore false. What did God ask in Jeremiah? Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? And then he says, behold, I myself, God himself, have seen with his eyes all the den of robberness going on there, declares the Lord, it says. That is, I see your works, and they're ticking me off, God is saying. You think I'm a pushover. You think I'm a little kitty cat. I am a lion. Hear me roar. Get ready. And then Jesus comes with the rope, and he drives the robbers out, and he declares not a single stone of this temple will be left unturned. And what happens in 70 AD? As Josephus tells us, not even a Christian, a Jewish, a hater, a Jewish person, a hater of, of the church, says, huh, the Romans came and they sacked Jerusalem and they didn't leave a single stone unturned. And if that wasn't good enough, in 135, Hadrian comes again. Another emperor from Rome comes and he does the same thing. And then he sets up a, an altar to Jupiter. Right there where the people used to worship the Lord. It's like Jesus was omniscient or something. <laughs> God is not one to be taken for granted. He bought us, each of us, with his own blood on the cross. He paid for you with his life. Sacrificial atonement. He is the end-all, be-all hero. Just like all of the, the people we praise in our, in our military, and our cops, our firefighters. I know, we don't do that anymore. But we're supposed to. These people who lay down their lives. Why? Because to lay down your life for someone is a special thing. For a friend, yes. But even just in the line of duty, 
For a stranger, awesome. Jesus did that for all of us. He laid down his life for you before you even knew him. While you were an enemy of the Lord, he said, I'm buying that person. I'm going to pay the price for that person. I'm going to be that person's substitute on the cross. They don't deserve it. I'm doing it because it's gracious. See, that's the real gospel. The gospel that says, I'm a poor, miserable sinner, just like we said in the confession this morning. And that while I am still this poor, miserable sinner, Jesus says, take me for you. Kill me, not him. Not so you can go on sinning, but because you are a sinner. Not to give you license to do whatever you want, but because you are already doing whatever you want. See, it's not permission. It's forgiveness. It's forgiveness. It is written, Jesus says, my house shall not be a house, my house shall be a house of prayer. But we've made it a house of robbers, a den of robbers, Luke 19, 46. Does God care about our sins? Very much. So much so that Jesus went to the cross to die to rid you of them. Pure gospel, pure gospel. St. Paul helps us understand all of this in Romans 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And then he answers the question, by no means. How can we who've died to sin still live in it? Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness but present yourselves to God as those who've been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness, justice. Those words are often synonyms in the scriptures, righteousness and justice. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law, but under grace. What then, Paul asks, are we to sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? That's the whole point of today's text, right? By no means, he says. You, do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? See, Christians don't want to sin. That's the point. Jeremiah was telling those people, you're not actually being faithful. You don't want to be. And now for us, the same thing is true. If we look to Jesus and say, ha, I can do whatever I want because of that guy. Your heart's not in the right place. Christians do not want to sin. The Christian disposition, thanks to the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, is to be obedient to God's will. It's not the, that obedience that gets us to heaven. It's just that we know dad, dad loves us and dad has established some house rules that if we keep, will be good for us. If we don't keep, well, we might end up a greasy spot on the highway. Don't go play in the street, son. But it's really fun out there. Until it's not, stay inside. See, we want to keep the commandments because we know they're our Father's will and they bring us good. We're not looking for a Jesus loophole to God's legal code. 
This is the warning for us today, dear saints. It's what Paul explains in today's epistle reading too, in Romans 9 and into chapter 10. Christ is the end of the law, we heard. That is, as the Greek says, telos, as in like teleological, that's for you, Robert. Telos, end. It means Christ is the fulfillment. Christ is the goal of the law. Not that Christ is the end as in like the termination of it. No, that, that's not the meaning. It's the, it's the fulfillment. As we read in Matthew 5, 17 and 19, Christ didn't come to abolish the law. He didn't come to terminate it. He came to fulfill it, to make it real, to make it substantial, and then to give it all to us. Can we keep the law? Not at all. Not by ourselves. Can we keep the law as Christians? Absolutely. You all do it all the time. Through your baptism into Christ. Because Christ keeps the law for you. Because you are righteous in faith. Are you still a dirty, rotten sinner? Yeah, just like me. You're probably a little bit less on the, on the spectrum. I'm up here, and here you are. I think Casey might be right in the middle, but here we are. Right? <laughs> And Christ came to save all of us. As forgiven Christians, we've been set free from sin, not to sin, but for righteousness' sake. To share Christ with others, that they too would be set free from their sin. The sin that they're fighting so bad to hold on to. The very sin that they want to keep, they think they want to keep doing. That's the sin that we came into Christ to help them break free from. All the different things we see in our society, all the different things you see in your family, all the different things that your friends are going on, on, dealing with. We're not here just to say, oh, as long as you're happy, I'm, I'm happy for you. Those very things that they want to keep doing that they say are making them happy, we bring Christ into that. It's like we throw a giant wrench into their John Deere engine. And at first, they, they're really ticked. And then they go buy a caterpillar because it's better. I don't know anything about tractors, so sorry. You can crucify me. Whoever believes in Jesus will not be put to shame is the point. You, dear Christians, believe in Christ Jesus crucified for you. Under the law, he took your place. Under the law, you've been redeemed by God, made righteous through faith. In your daily baptismal repentance, God is scrubbing away your sins. He's scrubbing away your hypocrisy so that when you point to the cross, and you say, Jesus, 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 it's true. It's not an excuse to keep on sinning. But you're saying, I don't deserve any of it but Jesus. And the Father says, I know. I know. You have received Jeremiah's warning the same way Jeremiah's original audience did. And you, living on this side of the cross where they lived on the other side, also have received Christ Jesus, the fulfillment of what he was talking about. What did the Lord have Jeremiah say? Amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. And Jesus has defined that place. He says, I am going to the Father to prepare a room for you in my Father's house. And already right now we have that, as this is a foretaste, church, this house and this fellowship is a foretaste of that future revelation, what it will be when we get there. Right now, you already are being let dwell in this place. The Lord says, you are here because you are repentant. I forgive you. He says, here's your baptism. Here's the Lord's Supper. 
hear this word. You are forgiven. Christ is your Savior. By the Holy Spirit, you hear the warning, you repent, and you dwell with the Lord now and forever. Amen. Amen. Amen.